this tent of meeting by the thousands and wait with hope mixed with fear while their high priest would go in and make, offer these sacrifices for God and they would wait for him to come out, indicating that the sacrifices had been accepted and the atonement had been made on their behalf. And the reason that they were paying such rapt attention is because of the penalty that was associated with their sin. There's a philosopher, his name is Cornelius Plantinga Jr. And he is as smart as his name sounds. And uh, he defines what sin is for us. He says, sin is the missing of a target, wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. What he's hinting at there is that sin carries with it the most terrifying of consequences, the most sobering of penalties, the word the Bible uses to describe the penalty for sin is death. Physical death gained entrance into our world as the penalty for sin. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul famously wrote that the wages of sin is death. But not just physical death. Spiritual death, a kind of spiritual death is involved too. Uh, think about it like this. So I, I was sitting with a, a Christian leader a while back, and he had a notoriously unjust critic. The guy kept slandering him and misrepresenting him, and he wouldn't meet with him to, to be reconciled or to make it right or to get the facts straight. And so finally, this leader just said to this guy, to his critic, uh, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. And what he meant by that is that this is a total breaking of relationship we're done is what he was saying and our sin in scripture has the same kind of deadly relationship killing kind of effect between God and us sin as Platinga would say is not only the breaking of law but also the breaking of covenant with one's savior Sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's divine parent and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a holy bond. So sin, really from start to finish in the pages of Scripture, brings death to our world and to our relationships, especially our relationship with God. And you, you see this right in the opening verses of our passage, uh, the first two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Right? So this, these verses are looking back to the 10th chapter of Leviticus where Aaron's two sons approached God in an unwarranted fashion, really in an unclean state. They had not done the preparatory rituals. They were still bearing their sin, and they died for it. And 
There in verse 2, and again in verse 13, Aaron is told, make sure he follows the script, God's script, about how he was to approach God and deal with his sin, lest he die. Sin has the most severe penalty attached to it. Over in uh, Leviticus 23, says that failure to observe the rituals of this day, this day of atonement, would result in someone being cut off from the people of God and being destroyed by the Lord. This is what's lying behind the imagery and the ritual of Leviticus 16 and the day of atonement, this death penalty for sin. And really the big question for us is how do we say good riddance to that? This is why the people were anxiously waiting outside of that tent of meeting, waiting for their high priest to appear. Um, Nothing less than life was hanging in the balance. If Aaron didn't get it right in there, he could die. And if their priest died, they could die, physically and spiritually. See, the rituals of Leviticus 16 um, show us a number of things, but I'm going I'm to highlight three major things that are essential for saying good riddance to our sins forever. And they all point to Christ. Okay? Every one of these ancient rituals finds their ultimate fulfillment in the sufficient, everlasting atonement that Jesus made for us on the cross. Look with me starting... Down around verse 11. We'll walk through a couple verses together. Verse 11 says that Aaron the high priest shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. You skip down to verse 14. It says he shall take some of the blood of that bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Down in verse 18, he shall go out to the altar that's before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. So I'm sure you pick up on it. The Day of Atonement is a bloody mess, right? Um, There's blood everywhere in the tent. And that's because of that penalty that our sins carry, right? Someone, something has to die. And to say good riddance to our sin, to be free from it, for atonement to be made, blood is needed. The life's blood is needed. It's been said that the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews essentially has written a commentary on the book of Leviticus, especially chapters 9 and 10 where where we read this in Hebrews 9. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he's drawing that from Leviticus, the next chapter in Leviticus, chapter 17, that says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And I hope that you're getting a sense that when we look in on Leviticus 16, we're looking in on something extraordinarily sacred. And it gives us pause. And it should make us think that our sin is way more serious than we think. It's not just an indiscretion. It's not a mistake. It's not no big deal. It carries with it the severest of penalties and the costliest of remedies. That's why there's blood all over the place on the Day of the Atonement. A life must be given for life. And this, this is one of those clear pointers to Jesus. The New Testament captures this language and shows us Jesus in it. Listen to the last book of the New Testament, Revelation 1, verse 5, my like, favorite verse. It says, Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 1 John, just a page or two before, wrote and said, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, because of the death penalty associated with our sin, a life had to be sacrificed, blood had to be shed. That's why Jesus died. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. To say good riddance to our sin, to be free from it, for atonement to be made, blood is needed. To say good riddance to our sin, to be free from it, for atonement to be made, a priest is needed. Here's the thing. Atonement is not a do-it-yourselfer kind of project, right? Uh, You need to call in a pro. I don't mean by that that you need a pastor or some kind of regular priest or even a bishop or even a pope. You need what the Old Testament calls and the New Testament calls a high priest. Um, And this failure to grasp this is part of what caused the death of Aaron's sons. See, only one person was allowed to enter that most holy place in that tent of meeting, and that was the high priest. And he could only enter there one day a year, the Day of Atonement. And to get in there, he had all kinds of elaborate rituals to perform. He had to bathe multiple times. He had to wear special linen garments, white garments symbolizing holiness, Uh, They were garments that were less, um, they were simpler. They expressed humility as he came before God. And while he was in there, he had to offer incense and he had to offer a bull for his own sin. All of this he did so that he could approach God as one who was cleansed from his sin lest he die. Okay, remember verse two? Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any old time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that's on the ark, so that he may not die. See, you can't find your own way, your own path to God. Not just anyone can sashay into any old way 
into God's presence on their own merit or their own plan. A priest is required, a mediator. And Jesus, the New Testament tells us beautifully, is that priest, that high priest. Listen to this section from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament writing about Jesus. It says that in Hebrews 7, 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, that's Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself on the cross. Jesus is the last priest who reigns forever. There's no need for a successor because as we'll celebrate in a couple weeks, he was raised on the third day and he lives always to make intercession for us. There's no daily or even annual expiration date on his sacrifice. He did it once for all when he offered up himself on the cross. Um, Professor Ray Dillard used to tell about uh, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah wrote like 500 years before Jesus was born. And in his writings, he describes a vision in which he sees a high priest named Joshua about to enter the presence of God. But to his horror, Zechariah sees Joshua, his high priest, about to enter the Holy of Holies. He's not wearing the pure white linen garments. He's covered in human excrement. This is a disaster, right? Not only for Joshua, but for all the people of Israel. This moment of representation by the high priest was their only hope of being cleansed from their sin. And Zechariah is despairing of this vision, and he hears the Lord say to Joshua, the high priest, take off your filthy clothes, See, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. I will send my servant and remove the sin of this land on a single day. And God had given Zechariah a vision, uh, Ray tells us, of how we all, even the best of us, must look to God as we approach him and a promise there to remove that defilement from us forever on a single day. Before God, he says, we are like the filth-covered Joshua that Zechariah saw. Joshua, by the way, is the Old Testament name for Jesus. And Jesus is that new Joshua who was blameless, that took on our filth, suffered its consequences, so that we can, be, we can now put on the garments of cleanness and righteousness before God. As Pastor J.D. Greer put it so succinctly, he said, Jesus, who deserved commendation, received 
condemnation. Instead, we who serve, we who deserve condemnation can receive his commendation. So you could say, as priests go, Jesus is the goat, right? The greatest of all time. But, but that's not what we're talking about today when we say that Jesus is our goat or our goats. Um, because it's interesting, in this passage, to more fully reflect the wonder of Christ's work on the cross for us, his atonement, not one but two sacrificial goats are, are required. Verse 5, we saw that he's supposed to take Aaron is supposed to take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Down in verse 7, he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And some of your uh, Bibles render that word scapegoat. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So to say good riddance to our sin, to be free from it, fully free from it, um, means we have to make atonement. And that atonement, can only be made if there is blood and if there is a priest. And then, as we see here, if there's a sacrifice and a substitute. Pastor, Pastor uh, Michael Morales writes about it this way. He says, to serve as a substitute in this sacrificial system of Israel, the animal had to be without blemish, had to be blameless. And this term, blameless, unfolds the theology of Israel's sacrificial system. Unblemished animals represented the blameless life, wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, whose sacrifice would be accepted by God in the place of the repentant sinner. Through the blameless substitute of a sacrificial animal, the Israelite worshiper not only paid the penalty of sin through sacrifice, but also drew near to the Lord. So this first goat is the one that's taken, and its blood is offered, its life's blood is offered as a sin offering for the people. In verse 15, it says, He shall kill the goat, that first goat, of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. See, in Leviticus, sin is often described as uncleanness. It's like a stain on our souls that makes us unacceptable to a radically pure and holy God. The sin offering then it's like a purification offering or a cleansing offering. It, it does what Isaiah said we need so beautifully. In chapter one of Isaiah, he says, come now, God says, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
In Leviticus, the sin offering typically focused primarily on what was called unintentional sins. These are like sins you didn't even know you committed. It makes you clean. Think about that. It makes you clean of sins you didn't even know you committed. How awesome is that? Have you ever thought about what happens with sins that you committed that you weren't aware of? Um, you forgot about maybe, or so you didn't confess them or didn't deal with them. Um, here we see even those sins are covered here. And I think the focus of this sin offering is even broader than, than um, unintentional sin. It's even more comprehensive. Look at verse 16. Listen to the language that's used here. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. The language is all-inclusive, right? He uses all the words he can marshal for their sin. Uncleanness, transgression, all their sins. I like the way the New International Version puts that last phrase, all their sins. It says, whatever their sins have been, it's all clean. It's all washed away. It's all forgiven, never to be brought up again carried away as far as the east is from the west. And that's where that second goat comes in. Look down at verse 20 with me. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat, that second goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Um, I'm so out of my depth here. Um, The second goat is left alive. The high priest who is representing the people puts his hands on that goat and it's a symbol of transference. He confesses the people's iniquities and transgressions and all their sins. There's that all-inclusive language again. I get the feeling he was standing by that goat for a long time. And he sent him out. That's why some of your Bibles call this second goat a scapegoat. A scapegoat. Modern day, probably the best example of a scapegoat in our day, if you're a parent, it's called a sibling, right? Your children, if you have a child, you have more than one child, they have a scapegoat. It's their sibling. They always blame their brother or sister even when they are guilty. A scapegoat is an innocent one who bears the shame and guilt of another. And he sends that goat bearing the sins of the people into the wilderness with a guide. And one of the jobs of that guide, as I understand it, is to make sure that that goat does not come back, right? That'd be bad to look up and see your sins come bleeding back at you, right? Um, Tradition records that he would take that goat 12 miles away. That goat ain't coming back. 
And there's another tradition that holds that the guide would then, at that long distance, take that goat and push him backwards off a cliff to make sure he ain't coming back. And that's the idea. The goat's gone. And with it, your sins are gone. Judgment is gone. Guilt is gone, gone, gone. Listen to, listen to the way the psalm echoes this truth. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah piles on. He says, God speaks there. He says, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The prophet Micah adds his perspective. He says that Yahweh will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You know, echoes of this scapegoat, this sin-bearing idea for the removal of sin are all throughout the New Testament as it speaks of Jesus' sacrifice as our sacrifice and as our sin-bearer once and for all. Peter uses that language of sin-bearing when he writes about Jesus. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And the writer of Hebrews uses language that, in my mind, describes both of these goats. It's the language of sacrifice and sin-bearing. In chapter 9, starting in verse 26 of Hebrews, it says, As it is, he, that's Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. There it is. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, there's that sin-bearing language, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our sin-bearer, our scapegoat. The shadows of all these Levitical sacrifices that had to be repeated year after year have finally and fully and ultimately and perfectly and beautifully and sufficiently been fulfilled in Jesus. Thanks be to God. So what does this mean for us? Let's just think it through as we close from three different perspectives. First of all, for those of us who trust and follow Jesus, friends, the guilt is gone. The shame has been borne by another. You are clean. You are free. Your sins have been covered and carried away never to return again. You know, I had a professor who used to use an analogy that helped me. 
Um, he said, uh, imagine that you're a tenant in an apartment building and you have the world's worst landlord. Um, never fix anything. If you're like an hour late on rent, he's preparing the eviction notice, he's angry, he's threatening, that's your landlord. But then along comes a new, a new landlord who buys the building from your old landlord. And this new landlord is like the opposite of the old landlord. He's awesome. He fixes everything on time. He gives you free rent for a year. You know, um, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's like night and day. But that old landlord, on the first of the month, he shows up at your door. And he's knocking on your door. And he's saying, you owe me rent. And you better fix those things that are broken in there. I know what's going on in there. And you say to him, beat it. <laughs> Be gone. Like, you got no authority here anymore. You don't have any, you can say anything you want. But it's been, I'm under new management, right? New management. The guilt is gone. The shame is gone. The judgment has been born. You are clean in Christ. Look at it with me from a second angle, would you? We, we have a saying around North Wake these days, as do a number of churches, uh, who's your one, right? Who's your one? And uh, this is not for us some kind of a sales target. Uh, what that question means is who's the person you love the most and most want to see freed from the burden of bearing their own sin? Okay. That's what that question means to us. Who's your one? Who's the one you love that much? And uh, what I want to say to those of you for whom North Wake is home, and we're asking this question of each other, what I want to say to you is, beware, North Wake, be very aware that this one you love, they are still bearing their sin every day. And though they may not even know it, it is crushing them. It is robbing them of the life that God has for them, of peace and joy and hope and love. And if things don't change, they'll pay for their own sin with their lives. So the, these days with this coronavirus situation that we're facing, um, the shape of the way we are loving our neighbors is changing. Right? It's not ceasing. It's not even diminishing. But surely it's changing. And so one of the things this means for us is this needs to be a season of prayer for those we love who are bearing the burden of their own sin. And our, our, our Circle 3 leadership team that works with our elders has sent out a great resource. Carson mentioned it. It's called Bless Every Home. You ought to have it, get it, use it. It'll guide you during this time of social distancing to pray the mercy of God upon your friends and neighbors who live closest to you. Pray like their life depends on it because Leviticus teaches us that it does. It does. Third perspective that I want us to think about and then we'll close this morning. 
if you're watching this this morning, and as you're processing this, you are concerned that you are one of those who are still bearing the guilt and judge, facing judgment for your sin. I just want you to know, it's a simple act of trust for you to hope in Jesus as your sacrifice and your sin bearer. To, to trust that that good work he did in giving up his life, his life's blood on the cross, would provide atonement for all who believe and trust in him. Jesus invites you into that. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, it says, Come to me, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls is what he means. Stop laboring under the weight of your own sin and trust Jesus to be your sin bearer. This can be the day where you really, truly, once and for all, say good riddance to the burden of your sins. What do you need to do? It's fascinating. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. In, in Leviticus 16, back in our passage, um, this is the main thing that's asked of the people of God in, on the Day of Atonement. It's the main thing they have to do. Starting in verse 29. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, that's the Day of Atonement, you shall afflict yourselves, that means you shall fast, and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So what do you need to do to experience atonement? Um, what do you have to do? Do you have to be good enough? Do you have to pray enough? Do you have to watch enough Sunday morning TV? What do you have to do? Um, this, is, this is fascinating. This is, this is what's asked of the people to receive atonement. Don't do anything. Right? Rest. Don't do work to try to be good enough. Rest in the atoning work of God. It says it there. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. Simply rest and trust and hope that what Jesus did is enough for your sins to be cleansed once and for all. The way that you received the work of atonement was by doing nothing and resting in what God had already done for you if you were an Israelite. And it's the same now. Rest and trust in what Jesus has done for you. Let's take just a moment and let me lead us in closing prayer. Lord, this is too beautiful for my words. It's too, too powerful and too life-giving, but I pray your mercy would bear on these feeble words of mine a kind of hope that changes everything for us. It changed our gait. We don't have that burden anymore. It changed our countenance. We don't have that sorrow anymore. Most of all, it would change our relationship with you. We're not staring down death anymore. But life forever with you because of Christ. And so I ask your mercy upon those who are struggling with that right now that you would grant them faith to believe that the work of Jesus is enough. Not for one year, but forever and always. Grant that, Father, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.
So a couple of brief, brief things before I send you off to lunch. Um, first of all, there is a class being offered uh, this week on Wednesday evening. It's the beginning of a, of a weekly series that will run for a season while we're um, not able to gather as a people. And it's called Six Feet of Separation, Navigating the New Normal. And so if you're free Wednesday night from 7 to 8, that class will be available and information will be sent out to you, North Wake, and as well as posted on our website. Um, but that's in development. So Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock, six feet of separation, navigating the new normal. And you'll be getting some valuable hope about how to bear up, trust God, love neighbors during this season. Let me give you uh, also alongside of that um, some thought for food. As you head into lunch, I've got just two questions for you to think and, and uh, process. And uh, these are available in the email that you got yesterday containing information about our weekend services, that email bulletin, so you can look these up there. But the first question, uh, real simply, the first thing really to do as you gather as a family over lunch, um, just have someone in your family, maybe a couple people, share their story of how they came to trust Jesus as their sacrifice and sin bearer. How did that happen? Um, and swap some stories. Maybe mom or dad, you could lead, and maybe one of your kids would be willing to share their story uh, there around the table together. So first, share your story. And then secondly, I'd like to invite you to listen to a reading of the entire chapter of Leviticus chapter 16 that we kind of skipped across this morning. And you can use the Dwell app. Okay. Um, that app has been made available to churches like ours for free for 60 days. So uh, we have a link that was posted in that email yesterday, and I think it'll pop up on the screen there. Um, that gives us 60 days for the best Bible reading app that I've run across. You just go to um, library on that app, and you pick Leviticus 16, and then you pick your voice. If you like Felix from South Africa or Rosie from England, or I think it's Mark from good old America, uh, there's all kinds of voices on there you can listen to. And you can pick your background music if you like piano or guitar or nothing whatsoever. And just give a listen to it. It'll take less than 10 minutes for your family to listen to that together. If you prefer, you can read it aloud together, just opening the scriptures there. And then I'd just like you to share together, what's the most awesome thing you heard read in that chapter, Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, that points you to Christ? Okay. So share a story, and then listen to the chapter, and um, think about what's the most awesome thing that you heard in that chapter that points towards Christ for you. As I send you out, I have a short benediction from Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong. And courageous, do not fear or be in dread, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Have a blessed week. We're really glad that you could join us for worship this morning. And we want you to know that if there's any way we can serve you during these troubled times, um, contact our office. One of our leaders will be in contact with you shortly. We'd love to be of assistance to you in any way that we can. Especially, we'd like to help you get to know God better. 
And a really helpful next step in that process would be to go to the website that's listed below. There's a really insightful short presentation that explains with great clarity how you can actually enter into a relationship with God and know him as your father. So again, thank you so much for coming this morning. Let us know if there's any way we can serve you.